This was a news item that appeared in October of last year about a hiker who had gotten lost in the parklands of the Canadian Rockies. He was only lost for 24 hours. It said that he returned home on October 19th, over 24 hours after beginning his hike. The person was not identified. Apparently, the subject uh, stated that he'd lost the trailhead around nightfall and had spent the night searching for it and once on the trail, bounced around from one trail to the next, trying to find the one that would actually lead him back to his car. Eventually, he succeeded and found, his, found the parking lot the next morning. According to Lake County Search and Rescue, they said this man had no, or this person had no idea that he was being sought after by Search and Rescue. They issued this statement. One notable takeaway is that the subject ignored, ignored repeated phone calls from us because he didn't recognize the number. The statement continued, if you're overdue according to your itinerary and you start getting repeated phone calls from an unknown number, please answer the phone. It may be a search and rescue team trying to confirm that you're safe. It's just a, a, a way to once again introduce our subject of, of being in a desert, being in a wilderness. Last week we did part one. This week is the second and final part of this about what do we do when we're in something that we know or we consider is a desert? What do we do when we feel or know that we're lost? Now recall from last week that a desert is really a time in our lives where the security and the rhythms and routines and relationship of our lives are suddenly disrupted so that we question what's going on and we wonder where God is. It could be for any number of reasons, a bad health report that we didn't expect, a financial setback that catches us by surprise, the estrangement or loss of someone that we love, being criticized or canceled by friends. All these can be desert times. And in these times, this is what makes these even harder, the, enemies of our, the enemy of our soul, Satan, or as Luke 4 calls him, the devil, comes to exploit our heartache and confusion. He uses these times to foment doubt about God's goodness and love for us, and even at times God's own existence. How do we not only withstand such attacks, but actually emerge from the desert with our trust in Christ intact? Now you may also recall that last week, so those are deserts that come to us. Things that we didn't expect, things that we don't really want in our lives, nevertheless they do come. But there's also times where the Lord calls us into the desert himself. And in those occasions, it's as he's doing with Jesus in Luke 4, He's, he's, it says the Spirit led him into the desert where he fasted and prayed for 40 days. And in, in the account, both gospel accounts that describe it in any detail, says to be tempted by Satan or to be tempted by the devil. So there's times where the Lord will lead us away from our comforts, our familiar places, and he does so in order for us to see what's inside of us that still needs to be formed, that still is kicking against the goads of the Lord's love and saying in some way, shape, or form, Lord, I, I'm just, I know I'm resisting you in that area. I know I've got these sin patterns that I'm still holding on to. I'm trusting in your grace that I'm still okay. But God says, 
No, I, I want to... I, I want you to surrender those to me because you're not the person that I intend you fully to be if you're still hanging on to those things. So wilderness times can be times of really that self-examination, which isn't often easy, isn't necessarily quick, but is something that's done out of his love for us. And so we don't want to short circuit that, but we, those can be, as I said, scary times because we're going to have to look at ourselves in ways that we would prefer not to. We're going to question what we know about ourselves or question where God is in those situations. But God leads us through those deserts as well. So whether they come to us or we're led into them, the Lord is with us. What do we do when we're in such deserts? We're going to see how he leads us by looking a little bit more closely at the Three temptations that Christ faced. And as we'll do that, we'll learn ways that we can apply this in, in our lives. Remember that as we do so, the, uh, whenever you're reading the Gospels, it tells you something specific about Jesus that we need to know about who he is. But it also will tell us something about how we are to follow him. So there really is a duality in how we approach Scripture, and you'll see that here. So looking at the three temptations... The first one is this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Lord, left the Jordan, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. After 40 days of not eating, Jesus would understandably be acutely aware of his hunger. It would be something that would be urgent, pressing, just persistent. And the temptation that he is facing is to abandon his humanity, abandon that sense of being fully human, and to kind of go into a divine mode and say, you know what, I can solve this need myself. I can change this stone into bread. This is what Satan tempts him to do. And of course, Jesus responds that man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And in so doing, he is affirming his humanity, which is always and everywhere dependent on the divine God, on God the Father. And so we, we learn from that that there are times where, well, if, think about for a moment if Jesus had actually bought into Satan's temptation and changed the stone into bread. What he would be saying is that to us is that I'm not the perfect fully human sacrifice. There's times when it got so tough in my life that I had to go into some kind of divine method in order to be able to withstand that. But he is sustained uh, and he faces down that temptation as fully human, but using the words of Scripture to combat what Satan is coming against him with. And so if he didn't do that, where would we be? Would we be able to have a sacrifice that's, that Jesus said, you know, Hebrews describes him as he was like us in every way and yet was without sin. And Hebrews writes that because of this temptation, where he, all the temptations, this isn't the only one he faces, but it is one where he is first called to respond to it as that human, but fully dependent on his heavenly father. 
Here's what I take away from this, what encourages me, I trust encourages all of us, that God will address, you know, we're tempted to take our needs into our hands, aren't we? We're tempted to look at things that we don't have, and we're tempted to say, you know what, I can get that for myself. I can, there's something that we, we do need, daily food, as Jesus felt. We need a roof over our head, clothing, and friendship, and companionship. We want a good reputation. That's a godly thing. We need some measure of finances in order to make things work. We are given a God-given dignity that we'd like to have reflected in our lives and in our relationships. We, we long for a place to worship and to be with God and his people. And there's times when we feel the lack of any one of these, that we can be tempted to satisfy that on our own. If we feel like we're not getting along at work or in our calling, we may be tempted to cut corners or take credit for work that doesn't belong to us or for feeling financially strapped. Do we, it's tax season, do we do the full reporting of all our taxes? Do we somehow get less generous with what we've been given, thinking that we need to hang on to that, thinking that we need to, to take matters into our own hands? If we are lacking or longing for an intimacy with somebody and that is delayed and we don't have that, do we take matters into our own hands and look for some kind of intimacy outside the contract of covenantal marriage? And that, that's uh, throughout our culture and our society. But for the disciple, that's not an option. Jesus says to us, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, don't worry about what you're going to wear, or what you're going to eat. You know, look at Solomon. Look at the lilies of the field. I mean, they'd look, I'll paraphrase, amazing. They're splendid. They're fantastic. Solomon, with all his finery, was not arrayed as, as one like these. And if God knows how to raise up the lilies of the field, which are here today and tomorrow in the fire, how much more will he meet each of our needs? This is why Jesus says, so don't worry about tomorrow. But what? But seek first his kingdom. And all these things will be added unto you. So resisting for us the temptation to solve the needs that we feel. They may be legitimate needs, but know that God will enable us to do that. And even if he's not meeting all our needs, you know, God will address our needs with his provision, but also with his grace. Because the reality is sometimes our needs go unmet for a long time. And sometimes... If we're honest, we're wondering, or we know that in some aspect of, of our life, they may never be met. If I have a chronic health condition, is that going to improve? It can miraculously, and, and that's good to pray for. But if it doesn't, am I okay? Is my relationship okay? Or am I going to allow the enemy to come with all kinds of accusations about how God's letting me down, or my faith isn't sufficient enough for this prayer to work, or whatever it is? Maybe what God is trying to give us is his grace in those situations. As he did with Paul, who had the thorn in the flesh and prayed three times, but the answer was not that he was going to be healed, but that he, his, the Lord's grace was sufficient for him because that grace meant power, being perfected in Paul's weakness. And once Paul understood that, his whole perspective changed on his need, far from something that was, was the, the focus of, of his desire to get rid of it and now became a source of strength. It didn't mean that it was any less hard and we don't know what happened um, or the details of that. But God will address our needs with his provision or his grace. The second temptation that the devil comes to Jesus with uh, is 
goes like this. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So again, back to that duality. For Jesus, he's being tempted with the temptation of a Messiah. You know, the Messiah to the Israelite of that day was somebody who would be a conqueror, a hero, somebody who would throw off Roman oppression, who would restore Israel to its glory, the glory it had in the time of David and in Solomon. And this would be very heady stuff to Jesus. Jesus knows he's called to be the Messiah, but he's called to be the Messiah in Isaiah, the one who suffers for us, the one who has stripes, the one who's so bruised and beaten that that he's, he's unrecognizable. That's the Messiah that Jesus is called to. His road is not the way of the conqueror, but it's the way of the criminal. He won't arrive on horseback, proud and, and stately with a sword in his hand, the symbol of power. He won't have the mantle of authority in the form of a ruler's cape around his shoulders, but he will come by foot, bent and bowed by the weight of the cross, which is an instrument of condemnation and death, and his rank will be marked by the mockery of a crown of thorns. But this really is the road of victory. This is how sin gets conquered. This is what the Messiah is really supposed to do. But in an instant, Satan tries to get him off that road onto one of glory with accolades and with all kinds of riches and power, the kind of thing that anybody in the world apart from God would want. But Jesus knows that his road is to take his sinless body and give it to, over to death for our sins. Because of what we, he will do, as Luke carries on describing his ministry, but now we know has done for us, no temptation that comes to us needs to prevail. He's conquered sin and death. He's conquered the power, the principalities and power. And because Christ has crushed Satan under his feet, we have an opportunity and, and not to be overwhelmed by these temptations that we face. Not to think that they're irresistible. Satan would like us to think that. The temptation to think that the temptation that we're facing is irresistible is a temptation in itself. The enemy is clever. He'll layer these things on. But we know his schemes. And better yet, we know the one who protects us and watches over us. Who, like us, is tempted in every way. So when the enemy comes to us and offers us some sort of life of significance quote-unquote, being a big wheel or being some kind of person of influence, we have to ask, what's the price? Jesus could have had all of what Satan was offering just for one act of worship, one single simple act of worshiping Satan. But then the Lord knew what was really afoot. And so he responds, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The third temptation reads this way. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand at the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And here Jesus is being tempted to test the Lord. To, so what that means is to somehow get God to change his mind about what he plans to do. 
or when he plans to do it. This is, uh, we see this when the Israelites are going through the desert and they're grumbling because they don't have food and they're grumbling because they don't have water. I don't want to be too hard on them. They, they go without food for quite a while and they're, they haven't had water in three days. I mean, I don't know about you, but after like six hours, I'm looking for something to drink. And so you, we might have some sympathy with them about this desire to say, hey, Lord, I thought you said that you would support my needs in this way. I thought you promised me that this would happen. And when we start to test him that way, and we start to question his love for us, his care for us, whether he even knows what's going on, um, we're in this place of, of danger. This is what the enemy wants to exploit. And it's easy to let ourselves get into that position. Look at, what, look at how Satan is, is tempting Jesus in this moment. He's actually tempting him with Scripture. It's like, doesn't Scripture say? It doesn't say, doesn't it say? He says... Go ahead, it, it says, he, he quotes Psalm 90, 90, 91. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not, not strike your foot against a stone. This is when, when the enemy really turns up the heat, when he starts using scripture against us. Have you ever faced a temptation and you're like, yeah, it's kind of attractive, this temptation. I like... I like just kind of camping out in the battle zone. Okay, that's bad all by itself. But you know that, that the enemy comes and he says, you know what, if you do it, you can't be forgiven. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness and forgive us. Okay, so I can, I can do this and confess it later. When we're starting to listen to Satan quoting scripture in our mind, we, we should, you know, alarm bells should be going off. We should already know that we are in trouble. But we should also know that this is how the enemy comes to us. In the abundance of counselors, there's victory. Uh, we, Paul tells his disciples to test the spirits. The enemy is sneaky and he will use scripture at times. But Jesus meets that with with the appropriate scripture for the time. It is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do not, and, and the enemy is trying to get between Jesus' relationship with his heavenly father there. The first, so just kind of a summary of these three temptations and the way that the enemy comes at us. He tries to exploit our, our needs, the things that we are, are legitimate and we long for, and we wonder when we're going to get them or they seem delayed or is God going to be sufficient for that? That's one way that he comes at us. The desire is to have a life that's meaningful, uh, a certain amount of focus and practice and expectation of reward for the things that we're doing. I think that is very understandable um, and is in its, in its context is fine, but the enemy tries to exploit that to get us to cut corners. And finally, he directs his attention at our relationship with God himself, trying to get us to test the Lord, trying to get us to deny that the Lord cares about us. We face all kinds of these in so many forms. How did Jesus meet these temptations? How did he get out of this desert of this, the enemy's exploitation of what was going on? Well, I doubt it has escaped your attention that he used Scripture. Each and every reply is a quote from Scripture. What's interesting about that is there's no arguing. He's not debating with Satan. He's not condemning Satan. There's no impromptu speech coming out of his mouth. There's nothing coming out other than the pure word of God. And what he's doing, he's taking the power of God and he's applying it to, uh, to the enemy's 
attacks. And I think if that's what Jesus is doing, is there anything else we ought to be doing to get through our own desert experiences? When we're going through hardships, whether we're facing up to some things that we've been not looking at for a while, that's Jesus calling us into a desert to meet with him, or stuff that comes from, it, from the outside, we know that the enemy will exploit that. And, and my hope and my prayer my, for me and us is that we would ask God where that scripture is, those scriptures are, that we need in order to do battle with what's going on. In order to, just, in order to understand what's going on first, and secondly, how to withstand the pressures that are coming against us. You know, this is what Hebrews says, right? Hebrews 4, uh, 12 and 13. For the word of God, when we look at is active. It is alive and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. You know, when we would reach for the purity of the word, the holiness that it has, and the strength and power that it contains, the enemy does not win against us. Um, you know, maybe that's a repeated kind of thing. Don't think that, you know, this isn't like uh, Star Wars, you know, where Obi-Wan just sort of slashes and the guy disappears. This can be a, a running battle, but trust that God will give us the right words from his word to be able to withstand those temptations. Meet the temptation that we, each of us needs to meet the temptation we face with the words of Jesus, who actually is Jesus himself. In the beginning was the word and the word was God. If you don't know that the scripture, you know, trust that he will give that to you. He will. The Holy Spirit will call scriptures to mind or concepts to mind or stories to mind. Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. All these guys who they were, they're catalogs so that we would understand that these were people that withstood temptation. Moses was standing the temptation to be, uh, not to just camp out in Egypt as a prince of Egypt, but rather to throw in his lot with God's calling and leading the Israelites out of bondage with all the hardships that that entailed. There's so many ways that God encourages us by his word. So when we're in the desert, trust that his word will come to us. Look for that. Expect that. Hear that. Don't be like the hiker and the, the word's just trying to get a hold of you and that you're not picking up. Be like the one who picks up and says, Holy Spirit, thank you. I needed that word in this time. Tomorrow, I'm going to face that same temptation. I'll need a word again. I'm going to get some friends around me, and they can speak your word to me. There's a variety of ways to do that. But I just want to leave us with this, that deserts come to us unbidden and unlooked for and in ways that we know are going to make our life hard for some kind of season. And there's times when we go into them voluntarily because we know the Lord wants to do business with us. But we are never in these alone, and we are never in these forever. We come out through the grace of God, by the word of God. May he give that wisdom, uh, drive that deep into our heart, particularly during this Lenten time. Amen. Thanks for being with us online in the sermon podcast. To find out more about Holy Trinity Silicon Valley, head to www.holytrinitysv.org.